What is up, everyone? My name is Adnan Shafi, and today we're going to be bringing you the last episode in season, I believe it's season eight. Yes, season eight of Pariah Nation. The next season, we're going to be bringing you guys a lot of different stuff, and I'll be announcing some new segments that should be coming along with it. But we've been, we're going to discuss a topic, God willing, that I think that I've really been having on my mind for a while now. And as usual, we're going to have one of the one of the main frequenting guests. I think he's he's been here more times than I can count, but it's always a good thing. It's always a blessing. I'd just like to welcome Jamil Ninsu. What's up, Jamil? Salam, um, Adnan. Hello, everybody. I am. Yeah, I think this is like my second home. I love coming on and speaking with Adnan, talking to the listeners. And this is a this is a subject that I've been wanting to talk about you know they, they have, you have that audio on tiktok it's like i've been dying to talk about this for a minute and that's me right now yeah walaikum salam bro and obviously yeah, for those who don't know i am also muslim and i am a black muslim so this this topic obviously for me uh, you know living in different countries i've not been able to encounter it as much as jamil but i've definitely seen it on apps like tiktok and twitter and we'll talk about that whole rihanna case as well i think we'll bring that up as well um, but we'll explain everything, guys. But before we get into this, uh, for my non-Muslim speakers, there are some terms that we're going to use that you might not understand. So I'll just go through a couple of them and the rest will just explain them as we go on. So some common terms we'll mention are hadith. Hadith are essentially oral traditions that are relayed from the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And we use this as a secondary source of scripture. And essentially, we believe that we're also meant to follow the teachings of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. So this is basically where we derive all of these things, like the stories, uh, all these notes about character, all these notes about prayer and how to pray. That's where we get them from. And they count as a secondary form of scripture. You will also hear me use words like alayhi salam. There'll be salallahu alayhi wa salam and radiallahu anhu or anha, right? So if you hear any of those, those are just terms of endearment and respect that we as Muslims give to our holy prophets and their companions. So anything else that we'll be talking about or like any terms that we'll be using, we'll try and explain them as best as we can. Because this, this episode is not just for the Muslims, but it's also for the non-Muslim crowd. So we can, you guys can get a, a bit of a look into what it's like to live as a black Muslim uh, in the world in general. So Let's first get into it. Um, I'm going to ask a very open-ended question, Jamil, but try and answer it as best as you can, just so we can get a bit of a feel for the conversation. But what is it like living as a Black Muslim in the United States of America currently? So to live as a Black Muslim in the United States, it's a very nuanced experience. It's one that's, it's one that's very unique because I am a double minority. I can only imagine what it's like to be a, a black Muslim woman. So now you're a triple minority, but um, I am seen differently by various groups of people. So obviously I'm black. And unless I were to be walking out in a thobe and you know, with a kufiyan looking very Muslim-like, you would just think that I'm a regular black, you know, average black guy on the street. So you probably assume my faith is Christianity. So I have awkward moments where you know, people might try to uh, have a religious conversation with me along a Christian guidelines, and I have to say, well, I'm Muslim, so my views differ a little bit um, as a, then they have, so I have, I have this thing where I'm kind of too Muslim, or I'm Muslim in a Black crowd that's predominantly Christian, and then I'm Black in a crowd that in my area is predominantly not Black, and so 
I find myself being ostracized more often in certain in certain instances where I might try to speak up on a black issue amongst a crowd that is mainly Arab and Desi, or I try to speak up on a Muslim issue in a crowd that's predominantly Christian or various things like that. I, I consider myself blessed to have a group of friends that are also from the Caribbean. So we're all diverse in our beliefs. And so conversations of religion usually tend to take a very interesting turn um, because everybody's comparing and contrasting, you know, me and the Rasta don't eat pork, but you know, me and the Hindu acknowledge wearing the veil and you know, things like that. Um, but it is a very interesting, it's one that I understand is a very unique title because of the nation of Islam. So I have to make sure that people understand that there's a difference between Sunni Islam and the nation and that I am not a part of the nation. Um, but it's also, it's a very, it's, and especially being the descendants of slaves. So I am Jamaican, my African ancestors were enslaved. And so that history as well makes me slightly stand out differently. In America, when someone says they're a black Muslim, you, the thought doesn't necessarily go to one of African origin in terms of an immigrant from Africa, but more so of a descendant of slave. So I think that term black Muslim can mean something different depending on where you are. Um, Traditionally, when you say Black Muslim in America, though, it's referring to the, des the descendants of slaves who practice the religion of Islam. Yeah, thank you so much for that, Jamil. Um, and I'm going to be giving my perspective as an international student, uh, but a Black Muslim that has come from the African continent. And I think for me, it's been, it's quite unique to just sort of reflect on my position as a Black Muslim on the African continent. For us, it's not really like something that people get shocked by. You can go to a mosque and you find that there's quite decent diversity, especially during Eid, right? You'll find some people who come from Turkey, you'll find some people um, who are, let's say West African, and there's different kinds of Muslims, but we'll also be going into some mini history about how Islam actually got to these places. Because some people ask me, well, how on earth did so, uh, I, uh, sorry, how, how on earth did Islam get to Kenya? How on earth did Islam get to Tanzania? How on earth are they Muslims in Madagascar and in Mozambique? And uh, what we, the answer to that is just simply trade uh, through the Swahili coast. And a lot of Arabs actually came down from there and a lot of, they mixed with the, the populations that were there. And I think as early as the, you know, the, uh, I think it was the ninth century, 10th century, sorry, 11th century, actually, they started to build mosques. And that's when Islam actually became a bit more common in those areas. And we'll also be talking about um, Islam in West Africa and how uh, a lot of empires, a lot of people don't actually know this, but they actually adopted Islam. But first off, I want us to deal with the main issue or what I think is the common denominator when it comes to anti-Blackness in the Muslim community. So as you know, there's Muslims of all kinds, uh, but I feel like there's a particular issue in some... Arab communities in relation to the problem of Arab supremacy. And this is the idea that, and this, sorry, this manifests itself when it comes to anti-Blackness in the Muslim community in the sense that some Arabs actually feel like they have more of a claim to the religion on certain bases. So you'll find that they'll be like, okay, because the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, came from our lineages, therefore, you know, we're special. Or someone will be like, Oh, because we have the, uh, the Kaaba, or for those who don't know what the Kaaba is, it's basically the most sacred 
like a mosque for us as Muslims and we go to do pilgrimage there. As I'm just summarizing, just for the sake of time. But basically having all of these holy sites in a lot of these areas. So people are just like, okay, yeah, so especially it's a subconscious thing, even though this is totally impermissible. Uh, but what do you think are the main routes? Like I've just mentioned these bases, like what's your opinion on that, first of all? And what other bases or routes are there in Arab supremacy? And how does this actually affect Black Muslims where you're living? So it's, it's funny that you bring it to that. A, I believe it was a year or two ago, I was on the board of the Muslim Student Association at my college where, surprise, surprise, I'm the only Black Muslim on the board and sometimes I'm the only Black Muslim in the entire meetings. However, they asked me to do a presentation and I did a presentation on religion versus culture, right? Because we do have some students who come in who aren't Muslim. And I wanted to, de I wanted to differentiate between what, are, what is Islamic practices and what is Islamic um, and what is cultural practices. And so I started that off with a quote that said, Arabic is the language of our religion, but it is not the culture of our religion. And so I'm going to ask you one quick question, which is, what is Muslim clothing? Yeah, so that's, that's a very good question. I, I think that a lot of people actually too often, they look at Muslim clothing as Arab clothing. But what people don't realize is Islamic clothing is only meant to abide certain guidelines. And here's where I went through in the African card, because here on the African continent, we know that a lot of people on the Swahili coast, yeah, a lot of their clothing is already Arab anyways, because they've mixed with them, but it's also a mixture of different indigenous clothing, right? So you, as long as you have, let's say, like a loose sort of um, garment, right, that would be something that someone can be able to wear, but it doesn't necessarily say anything about color. There's no you know, prohibition on certain patterns. So even in West Africa specifically, you actually find a lot of these thobes, you can tell that they're from West Africa. And I, when I was with my Nigerian friends in my previous school, they used to call it something different. It was not just, oh, it's a thobe, right? You know, it was something inherent in their culture. And some of them even just wear it without even being Muslim, but it abides by Muslim guidelines. So I don't think that Muslim clothing is Arab clothing per se. Right, and so, that answer is perfectly tied into what I'm going to say. So when I gave this presentation, I had to address the fact that, that Arabic is our religion. It is the religion of the Quran. It is the religion of Muslims, but it is not our culture. And so when we talk about Arab superiority, I have to take into account the descendants of slaves. So that is Afro-Latinos, Afro-Caribbeans, and African-Americans who come to Islam as a means of returning to ancestral practices, right? And we're now in a time where a lot of people are, a lot of Black people are acknowledging that Christianity was forced onto their ancestors. And so they're wanting to come to Islam because they can acknowledge Islam as a religion that was practiced in West Africa. And even if they, they could probably say maybe at least one of their ancestors practice Islam. And so what happens is they return to Islam because of this Arab superiority that overhangs, they adopt an Arab way of looking at certain things. So they learn to speak Arabic, which isn't wrong. I'm not saying that's wrong, but they learn to speak Arabic. But they also tend to buy only Arab clothes. And they almost take on an Arab mindset 
when they when they you know they start going about islam and it's a very deep focus into embracing this arab identity when i think the the gimmick is that in the quran it says that we are from various tribes and nations that we may get to know each other and so i believe that when you have this arab superiority that everyone is supposed to think and act the same then you that is going against that is in complete con contradiction to that verse. And to br bring in another example, and this doesn't necessarily apply to black Muslims so much as it applies to the whole concept of Arab superiority. When the Africans were brought to the Caribbean, just like they were brought to North America, the Islamic identity was lost through the force come conversions to Christianity. However, islands like Jamaica, Trinidad, and Guyana received an importation of Indian indentured laborers, and amongst them were Muslims. Now, so what happens is Islam in South Asia is very different from Islam in West Africa, which is very different from Islam in the Middle East. And so the Islam of the Caribbean became a very Indian Islam, if I can say. And when the world became more modern and travel was becoming a thing, you had Arab Muslims who came to the Caribbean and told these South Asian Muslims that they were doing Islam all wrong. And that because it wasn't the Arab way, it was the wrong way. And so, and I know the topic is black Muslims, but I just wanted to give that as another example of this Arab superiority and how it comes into play. Yeah, no, I think you make a very good point. I think what I would probably say is in relation to the clothing, for example, right? a lot of people try to make it seem or demonize you know certain african clothing or certain clothing that doesn't necessarily look arab per se even though for example it, it literally meets the guidelines that islam is advocating for and that we know is unequivocally wrong right when it comes to things like actual theology the creed of islam those things you can refute right because for us we don't really discriminate if we feel like, for example, if the if, if your teachings, for example, go against those of the earlier scholars, most people will probably say you're deviant. But this isn't even a topic of theology. This is literally culturally based things. So, I mean, even where there's a difference of opinion allowed, and oh, we, we must get into this, actually. We'll probably get into this. But we'll get into the whole topic of uh, something like rap, for example, or music. So I'll, I'll give you guys, we'll go into that now, actually, if you don't mind. Jamil, a bit of a segue. I think we need to take that segue <clears throat> to sort of add flesh to this Arab supremacy thing that we often see. Is that we we came to a bit of a juncture where we already know, right? Um, and obviously there's debate about it, but um, by vast majority of the scholars of Islam, we know that music is something that we can listen to. Musical instruments in general are prohibited, right? That's one thing. <clears throat> when it comes to something like for example, the type of music people listen to, there's certain artists that use musical instruments. So here's the thing. They, one time there was a band called Dean Squad and they were doing rap and they were using musical instruments, right? But at the same time, there are people like Mahar Zain and Sami Yusuf who also use musical instruments. So ideally, if we're speaking from an Islamic perspective, they should both be held to the same level of culpability because they are both, first of all, yeah, they're both kind of like they're sinning in a sort of way. But what I find very interesting, and Jay Dean, a member of the Dean Squad, actually talked about this, was this idea that 
there is preferential in quotes guidance being given <laughs> to certain groups and jadeen was basically the guy who was rapping and they were mainly looking at this hip hop the moment that someone's rapping it's like oh that's haram that's haram that's haram right but now the moment where it's maher zain or you know someone else like mashallah you know such a nice voice everyone is silent and what i find very interesting is a lot of big scholars actually came out to talk about this whole music thing and they gave guidance specifically to dean squad one of the members of whom is black and i know you're going to talk about native dean probably t- yeah to please tell us that story jamil but let me just finish this last point right the idea is if music is haram you should treat both cases the same i don't know why big scholars came out talking about them but i've never seen people talking about mahar zain i've never seen people talking about sami yusuf and i think that's that's actually a problem because you you you're subconsciously practicing the religion in a way that benefits others right uh and like it just shows that you're you're sort of being hypocritical so i mean what what are your thoughts on this and what have, what has been your experience surrounding this jamil so when it comes to music in islam i have always come to under i've always known that it is something that there is difference of like people muslims will argue amongst themselves what constitutes music and what doesn't now i told you all i served on the board of the msa which means that i i sat on the planning committee for some events now before i was even in the planning committee i was a very active member and we had a hijabathon and during the hijabathon um there was music playing and it was very much mahar zain music playing with the instruments okay now that i'm not even going to dive deep into that because adnan's already talked about the whole thing with the musical instruments what we will talk about is this there were arab members of the muslim student association who brought their tabla drums right tabla drums are a drum that is played amongst the arab community so knowing that they were bringing their tabla drums i as a black muslim brought a west african drum called a djembe drum now if you have if you are listening for the viewer the listeners they can google a tabla and google a djembe and you'll see that they look almost exactly the same however when i was playing the tabla when i was playing the djembe drum and the arab brothers were playing the their tablas only one of us was told that this was an islamic event and that the drum would not be allowed and it wasn't the tabla players that's one story another story is we were planning a picnic that was going to involve the other msas in our local area in the tri county area and there's a bit of discussion amongst who were the more conservative msas and who was not and so in an in an attempt to look like we were of the more conservative side we said that we wouldn't play music with we wouldn't play songs with musical instruments we would only play vocals so of course mahar zain is thrown up there as part of the playlist i suggested native dean native dean is a band that i think a lot of african american muslims might know maybe some non african american muslims might know them as well but they're a a group of black brothers who sing their songs you know they have some pr- pretty good songs and you know i suggested native dean and i suggested dean squad and the look of shock and disappointment and almost disgust that i received from some of my fellow board members for even to from from daring to suggest native dean and dean squad and it was and you know we had agreed that there was going to be no musical instruments native dean has at least two or three albums that are vocals only you know um dean squad maybe has one or two or three songs and so i was thinking that i was making a pretty good contribution to the diversity 
of the event. And no, it was not a welcome suggestion. And even now, if, when I go to MSA events at my school, you'll never hear Dean Squad. You'll never hear Native Dean. And it's usually Maher Zain or they'll have a Quranic recitation playing, but, you'll and, but it's hardly ever an African that's doing it. Yeah, first of all, I just I just want to really stress this, guys. <laughs> just because the music is Arab does not make it any less haram. <laughs> just it does not, right? And yeah, go ahead, Jamil. Go ahead, Jamil. In that note, I will also mention that I I, I you stressed it and I'll stress it too that the the Depka dancing that takes place at some MSA events, right? which shouldn't really be happening in the way that it happens is allowed but i can't get zamiluni by native dean on the playlist and so this inequality this and it it it, it we will get deeper into this but i just wanted to stress that as well yo man i'm actually dying bro <laughs> because honestly yeah it's i mean i don't get the logic it's like now rap all of a sudden okay and now we'll get into this hip-hop culture has also been associated in my opinion i don't think it's been associated fairly with something like you know drug use and all that stuff yes obviously we know where hip-hop hip hey wow hip-hop came from yes so we know where it came from but it doesn't mean that it's inherently going to lead you to like drugs and all this stuff i'll give you an example there are quite a few people that are actually like black muslims that are doing what's called like halal rap so basically it's like vocals only right and yeah beatbox in which there's a difference of opinion so those people obviously think that it's not um not haram basically yeah so they they're using this sort of style but if you see the comments it's like you know what is this what is this fitna or you know trials or like you know temptations like what, what you're causing fitna amongst the youth you know now they're going to go to drugs and i'm i'm like how does poetry over beatboxing, right? Which it is, it is a valid opinion, right? I've seen people like Ali Dawa, these guys using in the video, Muhammad Hijab, very, very, you know, notable people, right? That a lot of people take knowledge from using beatboxing, right? Then now someone's like, oh my God, now it's just gonna, you bring this culture of hip hop. And I'm like, what, what, what do you mean by this culture? Like what, what is toxic about this culture, right? Th these are things that I need to ask people. So all I'm just trying to say is that be, you can have, yeah, everyone, like, you know, everyone, I'd say, like, you know, take knowledge from the right sources, but don't apply knowledge in order to favor one race over another or one culture over another. And uh, Jamil, I think you wanted to add something. Yes. And so you mentioning the hip hop aspect reminds me of one of my, re a recent um, young Black upcoming um, sing Muslim singer that I, I know named um, Khalid Sadiq. And he has some, his first songs were like, you know, Islamically based, but they had musical instruments. And so if you ever look through some of his comments, it's a bunch of people lamb blasting him for the musical instruments. Okay, cool. He then makes a switch and stops using the musical instruments. He has a song called Five Daily, which is about praying his five daily prayers. Some of the scenes in the music video are him inside of a masjid. And now people are mad about that that he's inside the message talking about praying his five daily prayers. And so sometimes it really does feel like we can't win. Yo, that is, yeah, no, the thing is, I mean, I have a lot of people just, and this is my issue, right? I, I think Ali Dawa made a video and I'm not trying to like, you know, throw any shade to Ali Dawa at all. 
But I feel like, you know, people like Ali Dawa, Dawa Man, they came out and they made videos, obviously in good faith, you know, you're trying to guide someone, right? But my question is, no one has done anything similar. To my knowledge, when it comes to a lot of these Arab artists, like Mahar Zain, you know, you're not hearing these big scholars coming out and saying this, but now because it's Dean Squad, right? Adding a, a few drops of that melanin, you know, it's, it's becoming an issue. So, I mean, obviously the, the major issue is concerning this. And I think um, I want to just refer to your drum issue, right? <clears throat> so we know, guys, something that you should note, guys, uh, there's something called the daf, right? Which is sort of like a, a drum that came from that region, the, the Arab pen, Peninsula, right? And there's a difference of opinion about when it can actually be used. Some people, some scholars actually believe, majority of scholars believe it should be used during, you know, the, the Eids, and that's the only time that you can use it. But obviously other people actually have different opinions, yeah? So now my question is, why did they, if the drum is the exact same, basically, it just comes from a different region, what's the problem? And I mean, we're starting to see a lot of this is actually just, it's based off of prejudice. There's no good reason for you to apply the religion in that way. And I think that now that we've sort of discussed that, I think we need to just sort of, for a second, separate Arab culture with Arab Muslims. You know, we need to just separate that for a second. Because, you know, the, it's not just like, you know, not all Arabs are Muslim, right? Just the way not all Muslims are Arab, right? But now let's look at Arab culture in and of itself, right? And also like, you know, I'll just say North African culture as well, right? There is anti-Blackness in those communities. I'm not saying it's a majority thing or all, but it is there. We have seen the blackface. We have seen all of this different stuff, you know, and people trying to separate themselves from, in quote, sub-Saharan Africa. And I call it black escapism because you're trying to distance yourself from the notion of blackness in order to, you know, sort of cleanse yourself ethnically or, you know, just keep that ethnic purity in quotes that's what some of the that's the mindset of some of these people and I think that it's, it's something we need to look at as well and I mean there was this whole controversy in my comment section about it one time right uh but yeah I just want to know like what are, what are your comments on that this idea of black escapism and you know people trying to like distance themselves from blackness so I definitely see it um I saw there was on TikTok the other day there was this North African girl who was saying like how the rest of Africa doesn't claim North Africa. And I'm not, I'm gonna say this and people might feel offended when I say this, I'm not African in a sense of that I am not directly from the continent. My ancestors were taken from their, you know, some generations back. And so I wouldn't necessarily say that I'm African. I would say I'm of African descent, I, but I'm, I'm, I am Afro-Caribbean. I'm a black Caribbean person. Now, you know, and other people who know me know that I make jewelry. I make tespi, I make bracelets, necklaces, and I'll sell them at my masjid on Fridays. And earlier this year, I was selling them, and there is a brother from Morocco, a, I would say Arab or Arab passing brother from Morocco, and he sells food. So we, where we sell our things are kind of in a close proximity to each other. And so Morocco is on the continent of Africa, which would make him African, and I am from Jamaica, which would make me Caribbean. Now, a brother asked him, what is the brother over there selling? And he looks at me, and I can hear this conversation. He looks at me, and then he says, oh, some African stuff. Now, 
my issue with that is that this brother knows that I am Caribbean. And so if he had said some Caribbean stuff, I wouldn't have been bothered. But him being from the African continent and then referring to my stuff as though, and I, I, I'm not saying that I have anything against with being associated with the African continent, but why did this African make such a stance to say that he's doing that African stuff as though he's not from Africa and the couscous and kebab that he's making is not Moroccan or African style in its nature. And I see that with some North Africans where they, they do kind of, some of them disassociate, disassociate themselves from um, Sub-Saharan Africa because of interactions they've had where Sub-Saharan Africans reject them themselves. But I think too many of them, even some who have never had that experience, will try to utilize that and, you know, divorce themselves. I've also seen it where that also ties into Arab supremacy because some of them may not ethnically be Arab, but they still identify with it because they'll say, well, Arab culture is closer to my culture anyway. And so they'll identify with that. And so that's my take on it. It's that this escapism is a very real thing. It has various roots, but none of them are ever really produ like productive. I, I totally agree with you, bro. And I think the funniest way in which I've seen this manifest, and yes, I know this is going to ruffle a lot of feathers, but this is a, a podcast where we discuss difficult topics for a reason, <laughs> but where some Somalis will say, I'm not black, I'm Arab. Or like, you know, it's, I mean, where, where, for me, where does that come from? Yes, there are probably some Somalis that have Arab lineage, right? But they're obviously distinct cultures, right? And for some people, it's like they don't even want to be associated with the continent. It's like I've, I've seen some Somalis actually comment in some comment sections, right? That, oh, you know, we're different to the rest of Africa. And, you know, <laughs> it's like, what, what does that mean? Like, what, what does that mean? And that's my question. And actually a very interesting thing, right? I don't know how this, this dynamic works. Someone actually told me about a story. I can't remember who it was, but Somalis actually went to, to do Hajj, right? And this is Hajj, this is a whole, holy pilgrimage, right? And apparently they're being treated differently compared to other Africans, which is something I find very interesting. So I really need to look into the dynamics of that and what actually happened. And I think it was, um, there was another Muna from Kenya that actually did that, uh, told that story on her live stream. And I was just shocked trying to wonder you know, this is Hajj, it's a holy pilgrimage. We're all equal in the sight of God. So what's the issue, right? So I, mean, I think we've dwelt on this topic quite a bit <clears throat> and we've, we've mentioned, we've refuted this. And I think my last sort of um, line of reasoning in relation to this is that a lot of people think that, okay, yeah, because the prophets, uh, a lot of the, 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 the biggest prophets in terms of like, <clears throat> we also have a hierarchy of prophets. A lot of the greatest prophets came from this sort of region. So people try and use that as some sort of way to say that Arabs are now supreme. But we just like to kindly remind everyone that in Islam, we also believe that in addition to the 25 prophets that we know about, <clears throat> I think that I mentioned in the Quran, right? And the more of them, right? Uh, Quran and Hadith, right? We know that there's an additional 124,000 prophets. That's what we believe, right? That have been sent to earth. So they could have literally come from anywhere. And I think that's probably the case because a lot of them, Obviously, they don't appear in our scriptures, but all of these are unique, different stories, and um, they were inspired by God in different ways. That's our belief. So <clears throat> I don't think necessarily um, by a prophet being sent to one region, that automatically makes the people uh, better. 
I think it, it as in the Quran, you know, it talks about how, uh, you know, we're essentially all equal and the only determinant is your good deeds. That's the only thing that really matters in Islam, really. So I want us to just discuss, um, now we've, we've talked a lot about the Arab community, but now let's talk about the Desi community. Because this is not the only way in which anti-blackness in the Muslim community manifests. There is a lot of anti-blackness in the Desi community. And I mean, I've, I've definitely heard, and there's one main story of a very prominent Muslim poet. I think his name is Ashley Chin or Muslim Bilal. People know him as Muslim Bilal. He talks about how he was going to ask for someone's hand in marriage. And I believe it was a Desi family. It was it a Desi or Arab family? It doesn't really matter too much, right? But this happened, which is for me shocking. And hands down, she literally said, yeah, my parents won't let me marry you because you're black. And this all comes down to, you know, these stereotypes of, you know, oh, if he's black, he must be in a gang. Oh, if he's black, he must have been to prison and he converted in prison. I mean, so let's, let's unpack that from this Desi perspective, right? Where do you think this comes from in the Desi community? And have you experienced anything in relation to anti-blackness in the Desi community? So... This is a topic that I am well equipped on speaking about. Being a Dogla, I am the descendant of Indian indentured laborers who were brought to Jamaica after slavery and the slaves that were there in the first place. So my family is a proper good mix. And in some families, this is an issue. In my family, it's not. My great grandmother married a black man. I have aunts who are Indian and they're married to black men and vice versa. Um, Indian uncles that are married to black women. Now, but I do know of families where that is a thing. And in, in, in certain other Caribbean countries, such as Guyana and Trinidad, it is almost a death sentence where the, the, the Indian, per, if it's a, specifically the daughters, the daughters will be disowned by their family for marrying or, or having children with black men. And I think that part of it stems from a, the caste system and the colorism that was, that was implemented in India. And another part of it has to deal with the, well, in terms of the Caribbean, it has to deal with the fact that as a way of dividing and conquering, the Indians were set up against the Blacks in various ways in mind, in various ways. Um, with one of those being that when the Indians were coming, the Blacks, were, the Africans were told that the Indians were dirty and vile, and the Indians were told likewise, the Africans saw the Indians as strike breakers. So that's in a reference to the Caribbean setting. But in a wider setting, I really do believe that it has to do with the caste system and colorism. I have a friend at my masjid who is a black man. He's married to a Bengali sister. And him and I were having a conversation about marriage and stuff like that because I'm not married. And he was telling me that her parents had an issue, but they were able to get past it. And he said that it wasn't that, that her parents were overtly racist, but that her parents were from Bangladesh where there are no black people, where everybody kind of looks alike. And so because everybody kind of looks alike, you kind of marry someone that looks like you. However, they came to America and they have a child that was born and raised in America. And she's used to seeing people from all different types of walks of life. And so it's not necessarily an issue for her to marry. For her, it's not an issue if she marries outside of her race because it's, it's not this foreign entity to her. Now, does this excuse the apprehensions or the refusal some parents have? Absolutely not. 
but does it make it understandable in some cases? Absolutely. I think this is why it's really important that we unpack our prejudices. Everyone is prejudiced in one way, shape or form. And prejudice is something that is built upon the foundations of ignorance. And I'd say ignorance, as I said in my, uh, on Twitter, you know, ignorance in an age of information, if it continues into a state where it's being prolonged, then that's on you. That's, that's totally your fault. So you need to educate yourself, not only just on obviously your religion, all this different stuff, but the different people that are following your religion too. And when we get into the, the black Muslim history section, we'll definitely be trying to let you guys know a bit more about black Muslim history, specifically on the African continent. So, I mean, that's just something that um, I just wanted to get out there. In relation to that, yeah, I think it's in some cases it's innocent, in other cases it's not so much, right? Uh, and I think that a lot of people just need to unpack these biases within their family. And I think, uh, yeah, it's obviously something that was not just there. I didn't just come out of nowhere. I think in a post-colonial world where you have things like colorism that exist, and obviously now the caste system has been exacerbated by that colonial you know, structure, you get this idea that, you know, the darker your skin, you know, the, the more inferior that you will be. And you have these stereotypes that are continually being associated with black people. And I think as Muslims, we really need to, you know, take, I mean, we're, we're never told to judge someone on face value, you know, especially from the color of their skin. I mean, how, how is the color of your skin going to determine how righteous you are in the eyes of Allah? It doesn't make sense to me. And these are things we need to really discuss, right? But one thing I will say, yes, I'm not saying that, for example, if you don't want to marry outside of your culture, then it's an issue, right? Because, I mean, depends the reasoning behind it, though. If you are saying that I want to marry within my culture because I might find someone who obviously, or let's just say you, you want someone who's more culturally acquainted with you or you share certain similarities, etc., that's totally fine, right? And it's fine to have that preference, even in terms of like the ease of culture. Some people, if you marry them, you might have to learn a new language to communicate with their family, etc. But if you're doing it for the reason because you're scared of someone from another community, right? Especially when it comes to like, you know, oh, he's black, you know, what does that mean? Did he have a criminal record? You know, if it's based on these prejudiced notions, then that's something you really need to just dig deep and, you know, start thinking about. Uh, Jamil, did you want to say something? So, and while you were speaking, I was, I was reminded of something else. And I, I, this is an issue that exists within America when it comes to the Desi community is the model minority myth, which is that because Asian immigrants came into America and are doctors and lawyers and scientists and all these successful types of careers, that why is it black people aren't as you know, successful? And so what, some, what I think we need to remember about the model minority myth is this, Africans were stolen from Africa and brought to America and slavery was what, a 400 year institution. So you have 400 years of not having any money, collective wealth, because you are viewed the same as a chair. You can be bought and sold and destroyed at the whim of a person. Now you're free but your rights are restricted. You can't be out after certain times. You can't own a gun. You can't do, you, you know, if, three or, if there's three or more of you guys gathered in a group, the cops have all rights to break you up and try to figure out what's going on. And then you move into all these other systems that were put into place in America to keep black people at a disadvantage. However, 
the gate is open to Desi doctors and Desi lawyers and Desi chemists and Desi scientists to come in. And so you'll see that even though a Black family has been in America since before America gained its independence from England, they don't have the wealth because of all the systems that were put into place to keep Black people at a, a disadvantage. You know, Dr. Mohammed Khan comes in and he's a doctor and his wife is a lawyer. And then they send their kids through school with no help of scholarships or anything like that. And so then there's this there's this belief that there's almost there's almost a Desi superiority that comes into and this and then this doesn't even just affect Black Muslims this affects everybody across the board but it does affect Black Muslims and so that was just another you know frame of thought so you know you have the colorism aspect you have the caste system aspect you have the the Desi superiority in the forms of the model minority myth and it, it, there, I'm pretty sure there's even more if we wanted to look at it. Yeah, thank you so much for that addition. Uh, I think what I'll probably add is that people might also think that, I mean, in places like South Africa as well, there was some racial stratification that built a structure of hierarchy, essentially. And you find that there was black people, then there was Indians or in quotes, colored people, right? Then the two distinct groups as well, but they had almost more or less the same privileges. Then you have the white man, essentially, and woman. And they had their own specific rights. And even Nairobi, and that's a city in Kenya, right, East Africa. And when you look into the way we were segregated, my grandmother actually, because she was kind of light skinned and she she uh, she wouldn't necessarily look in quotes in quotes conventionally black, right? Uh, she was given the privileges of being able to go into the Indian bathrooms or the colored bathrooms, and people need to realize that these systems existed and they were imported by colonialism. So my, my, my first uh, question to those people who are genuinely like Muslim and they have these prejudices, it's like as a Muslim, why do you submit to a system that has haram origins where you have one, pe people asserting essentially that one creation is better than another? And we need to ask ourselves these questions. Where are these prejudices coming from? And they are not, <clears throat> you know, in Surah Hujarat, actually, it actually talks about this, you know, uh, and it talks about how some assumptions are sinful. And the fact that you can possibly be slandering someone by just, you know, talking about them and you think that this is a case. And I feel like that's literally the, the, the way Black people have been caricatured in the past 100 years. They've built on these prejudices. They have no source in our religion. So why are people still abiding by these prejudices and actually applying those, you know, conceptions to real life and saying, for example, I won't let you marry someone that's black. And I mean, that's just one of those different things that I, I'd wanted to sort of delve into. But also, um, I wanted to speak more about something else as well. I feel like when I, when I think of Muslim sheikhs, I barely know any in quotes, big, you know, celebrity sheikhs that are black coming to think of it. I mean, there's Mufti Mank and he's like, I don't, I don't actually know his lineage, right? I don't know where Mufti Mank is like, I know he's like Zimbabwean. He's Pakistani. Oh, he's, oh, oh, he's interesting. Okay, I never knew that. Okay, so there's Mufti Mank, right? Then there's Yasir Qadi, right? Who is also Desi. There's Omar Suleiman. He's from uh, Palestine. And um, who else is quite big? Let's look at the da'wah scene. For those who don't know what da'wah is, it's essentially uh, preaching Islam, right? These, these are people who often do uh, apologetics. There's Hamza, 
uh, Zorcis, and he's from Greece, right? Um, so far, no black names, right? <laughs> there's, there's no one that's actually black, right? Then there's also Mohammed Hijab, and he's from Egypt. Then there's Ali Dawa, and he's from Turkey. And I'm trying to think, who else is there? I, there's Sajid, uh, I can't remember, Lefam, I believe that's his name, uh, Yusuf Estes, and all of these people are white. And I'm, I'm wondering, where are the black people in the Dawa scene? Like, where are they? So... Uh, funny enough, I can name a few Black Muslims that are prominent, right? And this is because my belief, and I, I just, I feel very strongly about this. It, for me personally, there's something about the way Black people as a, as, a, as a race embody certain things. And one of those things is religion and spirituality. I think that when you see, because even like there's this joke that like Black Christian, Black Christian churches take this long amount of time versus white Christian churches because of how Black people worship and things like that, right? So I, I, I have, it, you can quote me on this, I've said it to multiple people, there's something about a Black man speaking about his religion that just does something for me, right? So I know there is Sheikh Omar Jabi is a West African brother from the Gambia. I found out about him, I think maybe two or three years ago during Ramadan. Um, if you go on YouTube, you can look him up. There's videos of him doing Tarawiyah prayer. So there's a whole bunch, which Tarawiyah is the prayer that's done at, during the night of Ramadan. Ramadan is the month of fasting. And so he has a whole series. He has duas that he's doing, and duas are supplications to God. Um, he even has some videos where he's teaching you how to do certain duas, right? So that's one. You have um, Soraj Mahaj, who's an older African-American brother, used to be a part of the Nation of Islam and then left and became a sheikh in, in you know, Sunni Islam. So you have him. And there's another one. Oh, um, brother or sheikh Abdul Hakim Quick, who is another African. I think he's African. He's either African-American or Afro-Jamaican. And then you have Bilal Phillips, who is Afro-Jamaican. And so these are some black brothers that I know. Um, these are well, not know personally, but that I know of and who I listen to, because. And and so you can see it sometimes with other people, where when you listen to someone with the same background as you, you you it's almost easier to listen to them because their experiences are your experiences, right? When a and you know sometimes you'll hear a a um, a Desi brother or an Arab brother try to come and speak to you as a black Muslim and they will say something and inadvertently offend you. Brother, Afros haram. Brother, XYZ haram. And you're like, well, where's where that basis coming from? And it's coming from nowhere but a, I'll give you an example. I was listening to a Sheikh on YouTube and he was talking about things to look for in a, in a wife, right? And this sheikh is the same sheikh who said that protesting is haram. And in his video, this sheikh went on to describe that you want a neat, a neat wife, one who doesn't have an Afro, as though to say the Afro is unclean. Now, I, as a black Muslim, who at the time was like, yeah, I want a black Muslim wife, was like, well, what, what does that mean? She can't, what do you mean she can't have an Afro? And so that's why sometimes I would I prefer to listen to black Muslim sheikhs and scholars, not because I'm a racist, 
but because even if there is something wrong with the afro the brother will say it in a way where it's not so blatantly offensive and it's more um, culturally sensitive i'm just shocked cuz i know it shekh you're talking about and oh yeah i just i mean i just saw so much that was problematic with with that statement because i mean i've never heard of anything like that i've never heard of anything like that right and as usual you're supposed to beautify yourself for your spouse at home right and that goes for both people like you know the husband and the wife so i mean i mean i'm just shocked that a whole sheikh actually said that you know straight up i think for me it's just the we we've always seen uh, i'm mean, black cultures associated with a lot of like sinning in general that's that's my issue it's like it comes from these stereotypes that if you're black you're going to be a gangster and then actually yeah we might as well talk about the bandana thing right and how some people have sort of worn i think there's a hijab style where like yeah it's covering your hair right this and it's not like too flashy like you know it's not like this like you know it's not too crazy right and you have someone who's wearing like a hijab but they also have like um the the bandana as well right and it's like yeah it's like totally fine from what i know and with my limited knowledge i could be wrong okay guys let me just quickly pause and explain what i'm trying to talk about in more context yes we do know that there are certain turban styles that did not meet all the requirements of hijab but there are other styles which do and when we're talking about permissibility we're talking about those styles in on the other hand though what you do have is that people also wear the style that does not meet all the requirements of hijab and what we're talking about is certain lay people applying this ruling selectively and that actually enforces these racial prejudices so um we'll get back into the episode now right but my, we'll we'll deal with it in the sense that if it's wrong it should be wrong not when another culture adopts it so i heard that some arab girls started to do, do this as well and then all of a sudden it became oh this is fine but when it was black girls that were doing it it was like oh you know this is you know trying to promote gangsterism all this different stuff i mean what is what's your opinion on that did you hear about it and like what what was your reaction So I heard about this. When I heard about it though, I wasn't even aware just how deep it went. And so I'll explain. I have a, I had a friend. I don't want to say had, we're still good friends. She's a Egyptian Arab sister. She wears her hijab 9 times out of 10. It's in a turban style, right? And it was during a Black Student Union meeting that she said it. She was like, "Yeah, there's a bias amongst some Muslims where she can wear her turban and nobody cares." Her mom is a lawyer, Egyptian lawyer. Where's a turban? Arab. Nobody cares. However, if her Sudanese friend wears a turban, it's an issue. I look on YouTube. I have a friend, her sister is an influencer, is a Muslim hijabi influencer on YouTube. Sometimes she wears the hijab in a turban style, and I look through the comments and I see people trying to correct her. Meanwhile, I look at other Arab girls, Desi girls, doing tur- they have you whole youtube videos turban style new turban style turban hijabi five ways to wear a turban side turban back turban top turban front turban all these things and uh, you look through the comments mashallah tabarakallah may allah bless you may allah grant you you know heaven may allah make your husband from the best of men and i'm like huh you were so quick to criticize these black sisters for how they wear the, their hijab for how they were they for wearing the turban hijab which when you look at african muslim women is how they traditionally wear their hijab which it, it it is it is born out of how they would traditionally wear their hijab and so it becomes this big issue where there's a there is a double standard at play 
And I would, I mean, I don't know if it's considered cultural appropriation, but I would almost consider it a form of cultural appropriation because when you look at the Desi world, tying it up in a, in, a, in a turban is not a style for women. And when I look at the Arab world, turbans aren't necessarily a style for women. That is something that is born out of African women, especially African women during the times of slavery. And so when you come and you criticize them, but then you do it yourself, I see it almost as a sense of cultural appropriation. Mm, I totally agree. <clears throat> I think, I mean, the, the hypocrisy for me is just like, this is what I'll tell people, guys. Like when in doubt as Muslims, go back to the Quran and the Sunnah. That's literally it. Like just go back to the, the main sources of your religion and be indiscriminate. And I mean, if you look at the way the Prophet peace be upon him dealt with so many different people from so many different backgrounds, he, he always saw the best in people, right? Regardless of what they did to him. And um, he really dealt with them justly, essentially, and looked at them as, you know, just human beings and never really made any sort of uh, prejudicial, you know, conclusions from just seeing someone. So, I mean, this is what I'm just trying to promote, guys. And in the last section, guys, we're going to talk about for me, which has to, it probably, I'm so sorry, guys, it's done so often on TikTok. It has to be one of my pet peeves. And we're going to call it the Bilal radiallahu anhu card. The Bilal card. The, everyone plays the Bilal card when they've said something racist, but it's like, oh, but Bilal. And so for those who don't know, I'm going to give you a bit of context. Bilal, Bilal anhu, was one of, uh, yeah, essentially one of the greatest companions of the uh, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And a lot of people remember him for being the first person to actually call the Adhan. And he experienced racism as well. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, condemned the acts of racism that he was facing. And that's when a lot of people actually began to be like, yeah, okay, fine. You know, this is, Islam is totally anti-racist. That's where most of people get that ruling from, <clears throat> right? But my issue is, that is, he's become the name. May Allah bless him, yeah, right? May Allah bless him. Obviously, he's, he's an example for all of us, right? But I don't think that it is entirely appropriate to sort of make him just the only part of Black Muslim history that exists. There is so much more that Black Muslims need to be given credit for. And I'm just going to mention a couple of names for people to understand that Bilal radiallahu anhu was not the only great Black Muslim. And we know this debate about certain prophets, peace be upon them all, being Black, right? And having dark skin, essentially, and being from the African continent. And we know that if there's 124,000 prophets, it's more than likely that there's going to be prophets that are Black, right? So that is already something that is part and parcel of our religion. We recognize different skin tones of our different prophets, peace be upon them all. But it's not really something that's, you know, integral to our faith, but these are things we should note for those people who are racist. So I'm going to mention a few names. And these are some of the greatest scholars, in my opinion, uh, in West Africa. So for those who don't know, there's a huge, huge tradition of Islam dating back to the medieval times of, you know, Islam in West Africa, essentially. And you go to places like Timbuktu and the University of Sankore, 25,000 students. And a lot of them were specializing in things like the Quran traditions, you know, the Hadith traditions. And a lot of them, I think a lot of the scholars were actually having their own libraries. And some of the greatest scholars, you find names like Ahmed Baba. And he boasted apparently and said that, you know, um, my library only has 1,600 books compared to my friends. 
And, you know, Ahmed Baba is one of the most respected names in West African um, Muslim theology. Like he's, he's really preserved the tradition then. May Allah bless him and grant him Jannah. The same thing for someone like Muhammad Bagayogo. I think he declined uh, a position to be the chief judge in his city because he was too afraid that he would be biased towards certain people. I mean, this is the kind of piousness that we're talking about. People like Mansa Musa, people just say, oh, he was the richest man in history. He was also a very pious Muslim. And I think that if he indeed was the richest person in history, right, that is literally, he followed the example of the, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. Apparently, there are some people that say that he built a mosque every Friday. There are some people that, you know, he literally gave people just lumps and lumps of gold. And he brought back scholars with him. And a lot of these people were actually the ones that made Timbuktu a center of scholarship. And it does not end there, guys. You go to Chingweti, another city with multiple manuscripts of the Quran that couldn't even date back to the 11th century. And people just overlook this. And they're currently there. I mean, I don't know why there's no Muslim effort to preserve these manuscripts as well, you know, and to see this. There's people who have written, uh, you know, manuals on the schools of thought of Islam, like the Maliki Madhab as well. Like, you know, there's entire books of fiqh that you'll literally find, or like Islamic rulings for those who aren't Muslim, you know, uh, entire books of that, you'll find them in these cities. So, I mean, like, let's just talk from your perspective, Jamil, in what ways have you seen the black Muslim narrative being watered down to just one individual? Although that individual may be great, to what extent can we really rely on them to give us a full picture of, you know, black Muslim history? So in front of me, I have here, fill in the gaps, the erasure of the black American Muslim narrative from the media. This was a paper I wrote for a college class about two years ago. I had it reviewed by my English professor because it was for a grade. I had it looked over by an African American studies professor for the black content, and then by a brother at my masjid for the Islamic content. They all said it was pretty good. That's just a slight humble flex. Um, so when we talk <laughs> about, <laughs> when we well talk done, about, huh? Oh. So when we talk about the black Muslim narrative in America, it oftentimes it boils down to Malcolm X. Everybody from the time you are in ninth grade to about the time you are in 12th grade, you have written at least one, two or three papers on who do you like better, Martin Luther King or Malcolm X. That is just something that I've noticed because I was one of those students and I ended up just recycling the same paper year after year saying Malcolm X. However, even Malcolm X's legacy isn't necessarily spoken about all that great um, because there are those who just don't understand what it was he was trying to do. You have those who might mention Muhammad Ali. And I can say Muhammad Ali is a pretty good um, stand-up example because not only did Muhammad Ali stay in America, but while touring in the country of Jamaica during the 70s, that also inspired a lot of Jamaicans to come to Islam. But I wouldn't just say that Black Muslims rely heavily on Muhammad Ali or Malcolm X. I would also say that you have those like Dave Chappelle. People don't know that Dave Chappelle is a practicing Muslim. Um, you have Omar Said, who was a Muslim slave from West Africa brought to America in the 1800s, who wrote essentially his autobiography in Arabic that broke down his life from when he was kidnapped in West Africa to his life as a slave. And this is now, this is this, this autobiography is now kept in the Library of Congress. And I think that when you water it down, there have been countless newspaper articles and things that are written about it. And I have one here. 
And this is just an excerpt from an article called Back to Black, Are Black Muslims the New, in, in parentheses, Old, Face of Islam. And it says, if you pass the magazine section at your local newsstand or grocery store, this month you will have seen two Muslims, actor Maharshala Ali and model Halima Adin, gracing the covers of this month's GQ and Allure, respectively. This inclusion is notable in light of the Muslim ban, but also because the Muslims featured in this issue, which are dedicated to celebrating American diversity, are not brown, but black. And so this will come as a shock to a lot of people. I used to work at a store where there was quite a few Muslims there, but ironically, they were all Desi Muslims. And there was a new girl who started working there and she told me in a, in a kind of weirded way, because I guess she wasn't trying to offend me, she said that she had never met a Muslim before. And I was like, well, no, that can't possibly be true because the guy who works in this part of the store and the girl who works in the back, they're Muslim. And then she stopped and she said, well, I meant to say I've never met a black Muslim before. And I said, well, it's funny that you say that when one fifth of America's Muslim population is black, which means if you've met five Muslims, you've met at least one black Muslim. And so this is something that we often don't talk about. And another excerpt from that same article said, typically speaking, Muslims who make appearances in US media share two fundamental characteristics. They are originally from somewhere else and they are brown. In this case, South Asian, Arab, or Middle Eastern. And I find this to be quite true. When you look on TV, you oftentimes see Arab Muslims, even the show that's on Hulu now, Rami, right? Which is about a young Muslim man experience in America. The main character is Egyptian, his family is Egyptian. There's the introduction of one black Muslim and even that black Muslim is constantly fighting the erasure and watering down of his, of his, of his lived experience because there's a, there's a scene where they're talking to an older Arab brother and the older Arab brother asks him in what prison did he convert to Islam? And the character has, and the, the black Muslim character says, there is this notion that we all black Muslims come to you know, Islam in prison and that couldn't be farther from the truth. I think people look at Malcolm X's story and assume that that is the story of all black Muslims everywhere. And I'll tell you why that's wrong. My good, good, good friend Jada is a Muslim. She is third generation Muslim. She is African-American. Her ancestors were brought by the, by the slave boats to America. Her grandfather, her grandparents on both sides, Muslims, her parents, Muslims, her and her sisters, Muslims, her sister, mashallah, recently had a baby. That is four generations of black Muslim. None of them have been to prison. And so this, this watering down of the black Muslim narrative to, you know, well, obviously you had to have converted in prison or that you're automatically a convert shows that we have forgotten that 50 years ago, the face of Islam in America was a black face. You know, we can, you, you can, I, I'm not going to argue with anybody who wants to discredit the nation of Islam, but I will say that if it wasn't for the nation of Islam, Islam as a religion may not have kicked off in America the way that it did. Because sure, you had people who joined the nation of Islam and, and it, it might've been the wrong path, but when Elijah Muhammad died and his son took over and, and realized that Sunni Islam was the truth, the amount of people who followed him to Sunni Islam, the masjid that I pray at was one of those masjids, was built by black Muslims. And in the area that it is, 
in Broward County, Florida, was a place called Crack Corner. I have brothers who are much, much older than me who tell me that in the 60s and the 70s, they used to be selling drugs down the street from the masjid. And then one day something hit them and they said, let me, let me, let me go check this, this, this Muslim place. Let me go see what these, these guys and these sisters are all about. And they accepted Islam. Where, where that masjid is now across the street is a park. A diagonal from it is a little restaurant. And all the people in the neighborhood can tell you how their grandparents, when their grandparents didn't have anything, it was the black Muslims who came and helped them out. And so I can reference a book that was written by Iman Lukman that refers to the colonization of the African-American Muslim. And essentially, and it's quoted in a newspaper article about the masjid where you have Arab and Desi Muslims and Muslims from overseas who come to America and they see African-American Muslims similar to how I described the Indian Muslims in the Caribbean, where the Arabs came and said, you're doing it wrong. And so my masjid, although it was built by African-American Muslims and a predominantly African-American Muslim community, is no longer run by African-American Muslims because brothers from overseas did not think that it was being run appropriately. And so almost in a way colonized it. And that's what you see with the black Muslim story in America is it's one that's been essentially colonized because now when you think Muslim, you don't think black Muslim on the corner selling the newspaper and the bean pies. You're thinking about what the news is showing. You're thinking about, you know, the South Asian brother who, who's running the gas station, the Arab Uber driver, you, you forget that Islam existed in Africa. And that a lot of these, what we call black names are really Arabic names and Muslim inspired names. Yeah, I, I think I wanna just add something to that because I mean, the, the thought that first of all, I think, okay, this is one thing that I see from a lot of different people or like the, this supremacy complex that we brought Islam to you, black people, you should be grateful. That's the sort of entitlement that people have, right? You know, we showed you the straight path. And I, I'd like to remind people who have that mindset, whether it's subconscious or whether it's overt, that it's historically infactual and Islamically impermissible because, you know, Allah is the one who guides people. We can only help, right? And we can only like, you know, for example, just show people certain evidences that we believe that Islam is the truth. But to have that arrogance of, you know, we gave you Islam, I've, I've felt that sort of vibe some, for some, from some people. And it's there in the rhetoric, in the tone, etc. When people don't even know that, you know, these massive empires, like the Mali Empire, a lot of the people were actually Muslim. Yes, some rulers did accept Islam on a political basis and for politics only. But there were many people that accepted Islam because they genuinely believed it was the truth. And that's why you see such a rich scholastic tradition in West Africa. And then you don't even go there, right? You go to a place like Kanembornu around Lake Chad. And you find that these people were Muslim. The general population was also Muslim and they practiced Sunni Islam. So I think we need to really look in deep into these cases and we need to interrogate our biases. And I think this is what we're gonna close off with due to time. The antidote is not telling people, for example, do not identify as black. That is not the antidote. You know, I see a lot of people say, oh no, you know, for Jamil's story, maybe he's overreacting, you know, at the end of the day, we're all slaves of Allah. 
you know, we're not, we're not black, we're not white, we're all Muslim. But you need to also realize something. Yes, we're all creations of Allah. But being a black person, if I say a black person, that is already a political statement because it has social ramifications in the world that we live in today. So instead of telling people, stop identifying as black and just identify as Muslim, you need to realize that whether you like it or not, you will have some subconscious bias in some way, shape or form due to the media, due to the history that has been whitewashed, right? Due to the caricatures of black people for the past 100 to 400 years, you will have certain opinions and certain prejudices, especially as a Muslim who's not black against black people. And you need to navigate and negotiate using, I mean, uh, sorry, navigate these identities, you know? And essentially, you need to attack the biases that you have. That's the only solution. So I think a lot of people, when they, when they start to say that, when a black Muslim speaks out about this stuff, they, they try to gaslight them and say, oh, stop trying to divide the ummah, stop trying to divide you know, us Muslims. You know, it's not about Black Lives Matter. It's not about this. It's just about the Quran and Sunnah. And I think that that's not a very productive way of dealing with it. You need to ask yourself, why do some black Muslims not feel welcome in this religion? And for some people, it pushes them to apostasy, not because of, let's say they doubt, they had genuine doubts, but because of a failing in the community that they had. So I think this is the appropriate way that we need to start viewing it. And as a black Muslim, to my fellow non-black Muslims, I think that it would be more beneficial to all of us to take advice from the Quran. And, you know, essentially we mediate these things. We don't ignore these problems. And I think Surah Hujurat is a perfect place uh, through which we can actually, you know, view this whole conflict from, right? When we see some people who are asserting that they're greater than other people or they're fueling certain conflicts, right? We need to view it from that, that lens. And only then, only then will we be able to actually sort out this anti-blackness in the Muslim community. And I, I make dua that we're able to do that. Jamil, would you just like to close off as well before I close? So, yeah, I just want to piggyback on some of the things you had mentioned. And so you had mentioned, you know, Black Lives Matter. And that's the thing that, People can say like, I, you know, like you said, people can say that, oh, Jamil is just over-exaggerating. But the thing is, it's not just me. When I, as a Muslim in South Florida, as I, I am a Muslim, Jamaican Muslim man in South Florida, can have a conversation with an Eritrean Muslim sister in Baltimore, or Maryland, I should say, and we can have that, a similar conversation, right? Where the only question is, how is the MSA at your school? And I say, I think you already know. And what, 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 is, what is understood doesn't have to be said. When I, as a Black Muslim, raise, the issue, raise an issue that is affecting Black people because a police officer doesn't ask me, hey, are you Muslim or are you Christian, right? So that, that's not a question they'll ask. They see me as a Black man. And so when I raise an issue about, a black, about a black issues or I say Black Lives Matter, and I am told that, oh, brother, I am, you are Black, you are Muslim, you are Muslim first, you're, 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 what you're not saying is that I'm black second, right? And so to show you that this is the, the mentality that some people have is Jacob Blake was shot and there wasn't a huge outcry that I saw from some Muslims. And then Jacob Blake's dad went and recited Surah Fatiha at a press conference and all of a sudden Muslim Twitter was up in arms. And two years ago, there was a young man named Stefan Clark who was shot in his grandmother's backyard because the police thought a phone he had in his uh, the phone he had in his hand was a weapon, 
and there was no outcry. And then there was a new story that came out that because of how he was shot, the, the imam who was going to give him the ghusl for his janazah couldn't do it properly. And that was when Muslim Twitter had this outcry that this is a problem that you know needs to be addressed. And so this anti-black, this this whole rhetoric that you know they're like like we can't cry out for certain things, but we will if they're Muslim, then bothers me because when the Rihanna incident happened and you had some non-black Muslims saying anti-black statements. And you had people who were literally almost begging on the behalf of people like you and me saying, are you forgetting there are black Muslims? Did you forget there are black Muslims? And I'm, I made a TikTok video about it and that TikTok video is now in a Buzzfeed article. And, and the thing is when a black Muslim comes to you and says, hey, this is anti-black, hey, this is racist, don't name Bilal, don't name Malcolm, don't name Muhammad Ali, don't name them, listen to us. I, I made a video where I said, you know, anti-blackness in the Muslim community has different faces and it's not just the old Arab uncle in the corner calling me an Abid. And I said, before you go forward, I know what Abid means. Abid means slave. Sud means black. So, and I understand that Abid can be used in a religious connotation. However, most Arab communities are not using it in a religious connotation when they refer to someone like me. And you have someone come and say, oh, but you know, it means, it really does mean, I said, I know what it means, but do you understand the context in which it's used? Because a female dog is a, which is a, a scientific term. However, when you use that term towards a woman, it's disrespectful. But, some, but sometimes when a woman uses it to another woman, it's a compliment. But because of the power dynamic, I as a man, well, you will never catch me call a woman by that name. And so with, with Abed, it's the same thing. And that is something that I think we need to, we as a ummah need to address. There's this idea that, you know, I guess black Muslims can't be as Muslim, right? There's this divorcing of Islam from black Muslims. And I know we're closing. I had these notes that I just want, like these statistics that I just wanted to say real quick. I, I hope I'm not digging too deep into your time, but I did want to go off of them. These are from the Pew Research Institute. And these are from, this was, this was published the 17th of January this year. And so it's from the article, black Muslims account for one fifth of all Muslim, of the US Muslims population. We account for 20% of the US population, that's one fifth, meaning out of every five Muslims, there's one black Muslim. However, this is referring to black Muslims who are not Hispanic and not mixed. So you can only imagine if they were adding Afro-Latinos and mixed Muslims into this. The conversion rate is that in a population of 100 black people, 49% will convert to Islam. In a population of everybody else, only 15% will convert to Islam. Also, I would go on to say that Islam is rising in the black community and the Latino community. So you could only imagine how it's rising in the Afro Latino community. You have the, when asked how serious and how important religion is to them, 75% of black Muslims said religion was important to them. However, 62% of non-black Muslims said that. Where I live in Florida, 75% is a C, 62% is a D. Going so far as to say, when they asked, this went so far as to prove that 55% of Black Muslims pray their five daily prayers versus 39% of non-Black Muslims. 
their perception of race relations says that 92% of black Muslims say there's a lot of discrimination of black people. That's nine out of 10. 78% of Black Christians said that there's racial discrimination, and 66% of non-Black Muslims said there's discrimination. I would go so far as to say that 92% of Black Muslims is saying that because we experience the discrimination inside the masjid and outside. U.S.-born Muslims are more likely than immigrant Muslims to be Black at a 32% versus 11%. And 51% of families who have been in America for at least three generations are Black. And I already told you about my friend Jada, who, with the birth of her niece, there is now four generations of Black Muslims in her family. And so this thing, is, what we need to do is we need to address the anti-Blackness. We need to listen when Black Muslims are speaking. We need to give Black Muslims the space and environment. You go to some of these Muslim conventions, and there's not a single Black speaker. You have one black person called the Adhan, you have some black people working security, but nobody's giving a talk on Dawa, no one's giving a lecture, no one's talking about Islamic values, you don't have it. But then there's this upset and this uproar when you have things like the Black Muslim Psychology Convention, or the Black Muslim Student Convention, or the hashtag Blackout Eid becomes a problem. Because we've already talked about it, when Black Muslim girls wear their turban, they're shamed, but when Arab girls wear a turban, they're praised. And so rather than put themselves in a position where they are constantly judged and degraded, we have Blackout Eid. And you click on Blackout Eid and you see a bunch of Black Muslims dressed in their cultural wear or dressed very nicely in a comfortable space for them. And it shouldn't be like that. If we are, if we are going to be this ummah, this united ummah, right, where, where the black has no superiority over the white and the white has no superiority over the black and the Arab none over the non-Arab and the non-Arab none over the Arab, we need to understand that while there is no racism in Islam, there is racism among some Muslims, there is some anti-blackness biases among some Muslims and they need to be addressed. You can't just sweep them under the, the rug and say, ah, but Bilal was black. Bilal being black, can excuse the racism, can, can show that the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, wasn't racist, and it can excuse the and it can say that the Sahaba that were with him weren't racist, but it doesn't excuse you not allowing your daughter to marry the black brother. Plain and simple. Oftentimes I make a video talking about Islam on TikTok, and I am here talking about Islam. I made a video that said like brothers should not be harassing the sisters publicly if they make a mistake, right? If you're going to, if you want to correct them, correct them privately, right? And I have people asking, are you Muslim? Are you Muslim? So I had to, I had to, I had to preface the video by saying, I know you're going to ask, yes, I'm Muslim. Because, because apparently me making videos about Islam means that I can't be Muslim. I have, to, I, have to, I have to let you know that I'm Muslim. When you have other Muslim TikTokers who just go and talk about Islam and nobody asks them anything at all. And so we need to address these biases. Stop asking black Muslims if they're reverts or not. As Adnan clearly said, there's a rich history of Islam in Africa. So, so stop asking if we're reverts. Stop asking us to just randomly recite verses of the Quran. Because I've hung out with my non-Black Muslim friends and they're not, this, this, that is not a thing. We're not sitting, you know, at, at Halal guys talking about some, hey, recite Surah Al-Baqarah for me, all of it, 
right now, real right now. That that's not something that's happening. But you see, you hear, you find out that this black guy that you've been hanging out with is Muslim. Your your first reaction is, did you convert? Recite a surah for me. Why? You tell us, oh, you know, you're Muslim first. Cool, we're Muslim first. But if you're going to say that we can't identify as our ethnicity or our race when we're talking about Islam, then I think we need to change the, you know, the Uyghur Muslim campaign to the Chinese Muslim campaign or the all Muslim campaign. You get what I'm saying? If Black Lives Matter, which is fighting for, which is fighting against the oppression of Black people, which is fighting for the, 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 to stop the police murdering of black people in America is something that is against Islam, then what is the difference between that and stopping the Israeli soldiers that are attacking Palestinians and the Indian soldiers that are attacking Kashmiris? What is the difference there? Is it because those are Muslim countries? We've already established that one fifth of America's Muslim population is black. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Jamil. I think <clears throat> I think we've, we've, I mean, that that is basically a testament to what life really is like as a Black Muslim. And I think there's, there's a lot, I mean, we might even do a part two of this, I think, in a future season. But I, I just want to end with a hadith of the, the Holy Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that I think all of us should reflect on. And there's obviously a lot of, you know, emphasis on the idea of tadabbur or, you know, reflection. Tadabbur and tafakkur essentially are referring to reflection and contemplation. That's something we've been commanded to do as all Muslims. And there's something that's related by Bukhari and Muslim that none of you will believe until you love for your brother what you love for yourself. And I think that, I mean, when we're looking at the Black Muslim community, I mean, like this idea of, you know, for example, you know, segregating these marriages of like, you know, I can't let you marry my daughter because you're, you're Black or you know, this idea of misapplying the religion when it suits you, right? Would you like to be put in that position as a fellow Muslim? You know, and would you not all like us to be, you know, all on the straight path? So why are you, why are you sort of adding your own uh, prejudices into this religion? Why are you using that as a, as a running force uh, in something, I mean, as a running force for your prejudices? You know, our religion should be separate from all these different things. And I think that as, if you're not a black Muslim, I, I actually urge you to, you may, you may be anti-racist, anti but you will have subconscious bias to just sit down and reflect upon yourself and ask yourself in what ways, for example, or what biases do I have? Right. Are you clutch? Are you clutching your bag tighter when you see, you know, that black brother or like actually I'll, I'll give the shoes example. Right. Are you, you know, clutching your shoes tighter or putting them in a you know very specific place because it's a black brother behind you? You know, just ask yourself these subconscious things. Right. You're not culpable for having these subconscious biases, but you are only going to be held to account, in my opinion, if you let them go unchecked and they sometimes end up becoming actual biases. But without further ado, I mean, I just want to end with a dua for this, this Muslim Ummah to get rid of all these prejudices, to get rid of Arab supremacy, to get rid of the anti-Blackness in the Muslim community. And may Allah just grant all of us guidance and grant us all Jannah. But yeah, thank you guys so much for listening in. I think we've gone far over time, but it's definitely worth it. We will be doing one in the future, inshallah. And I hope that all of you guys have a wonderful day where you are. And may Allah bless you all.